if you have been here for a while, you know that we usually study books of the Bible. And uh, we just finished the book of First Peter. Uh, we are starting uh, Psalms, the Psalms. And what we're going to do is there are uh, 150 Psalms. So for the next five years... No, I'm just kidding. We're going to try to do like a chapter a week for the next several months. And then like maybe down the road, we'll pick it up again and do some chapters and pick it up again. And so we're going to do that through the summer. We're just going to look at a psalm, most of the time, a psalm a week. Uh, We're going to start this morning with Psalm chapter one. And so uh, we're going to do that, move through the text and help you see that. Now, just a little bit of intro on the psalms just for you. I think it's important to understand that... um, the Psalms are uh, like a, they're a corporate worship book for the people of God. And, and they were for that. And the people would sing these songs. And, and they're, they're, so there's kind of this corporate nature to them where they would be sung throughout the, the ages in the church. Where, or you could say among Israel and their, their, their people, they would gather and sing those songs. Uh, it also kind of has like an individual focus where You'll notice a lot of people, when they talk about the Psalms, they'll say they really minister to me. I read the Psalms in times of trouble or struggle, and they'll go to the Psalms, and they'll just kind of just think upon those. And so you kind of have to think about it, I think, kind of like what we do in worship, where we'll gather and we'll sing songs, and then later uh, we will maybe sing those at home at some level, in some way, or teach them to our children. I was uh, one night Will was uh, not too long ago and I don't remember what it was. He just was kind of upset before he was going to bed. Uh, and I thought, man, I, I need to, to just kind of I usually sing one song to him every night. And it's usually like, Dad, tell me Jesus loves me, you know, and so I'll throw Jesus loves him on him. And, you know, he's over there standing up at the end. Yes, you know, but but I'll sing that to him. And then he might say, like, what about Jesus loves the little children? I'll throw that on him. you know, And then like. But what happened the other night is he's kind of upset. He was he was just struggling. And so um, I just held him and I just started singing. And I went from song to song to song to song. And we just did that. And what I think and it just I wanted something in his mind. Of course, it was calming, but it was I was rehearsing truths of God. Right. And the Psalms, I, I think they would have worked both for the corporate kind of nature for the church to sing but then to take home and be a part of their devotional life and be a part of their training of their children. Now, the Psalms are, if you look at all of them, you'll see there's five books within the Psalms. And they, they, they I think, very likely, they kind of point back to the five books of the law. Okay? You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We say that's the law. And I think the Psalms have that way of saying glimpse back into that and kind of get your mind wrapped around it so that when we're looking at that, I think it's just important maybe to to, to see their relationship to like to the law because he's going to say study the law and learn the law. And I think that, that there's kind of a connection there uh, between the two now. I want you to hear what Tremper Longman says about the Psalms. He says, the Psalms are a kind of literary sanctuary in the scripture. The place where God meets his people in a special way. Where his people may address him with their praise and lament. In the same way that the sanctuaries of the Old Testament, primarily tabernacle and temple, were considered to be at the physical center of the people of God. So too is the book of Psalms in the middle of the Bible. It's at the center of the Bible. And 
from it becomes this this overwhelming understanding of who God is and what he's doing and how he interacts with his people on a very personal level. Now, today we're looking at the first psalm. We're going to look at Psalm 1. And uh, sometimes like you you might say, well, yeah, it is the first psalm. But you have to understand that it's also kind of the introduction. Uh, What you know, you'll sometimes read like in John, the book, the gospel of John, there'll be a there's a prologue in one, one through 18. It's kind of the setting of the stage of everything. It's kind of there. there is a little bit of like this. Psalm one is an introduction. Now, in in Acts chapter 13, verse 33 we find out like when the author quotes Psalm 2, he says it's the first psalm. So again, I think throughout history, there was a long time there where they saw it as the, it is the intro to the whole book. And so you kind of get the idea of what it, where the book's going and what is trying to um, take place here. So the psalm encourages us to read kind of the rest of the psalms and heed their teaching. It is saying, meditate deeply on the truths that are found. Now, Another guy said about this, uh, he says, uh, the psalm strongly affirms that how one responds to the revelation of God unleashed by reading the psalms determines one's ultimate destiny. Now, that's important because you, 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 you may say, I'm here today. I'm not really sure about Christianity. I don't know what I think about this or that or whatever. But it is important that you say, the revelation of God, when you are exposed to it, you are to heed it. You are to listen to it. You are to say, now this, this book is calling me to something. It's not leaving me kind of out there. It's saying like, you come to this place where I'm standing before these words, these ancient words, these powerful words, and they are saying, you will choose one way here. And that's what we see, I think, in This psalm now, this psalm is what is called a wisdom psalm. It it really, again, it can it helps you consider two ways of living that will lead to two different destinies. So it's kind of it's 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 within that kind of realm. There are many different ways that you kind of when you read a psalm, you might say this is a lament psalm. This one is a a wisdom psalm. It's kind it's an exhortation. It's encouraging you and, and kind of pushing you to respond, and, and it really uses both positive and negative examples to, to urge you to adopt uh, the, the, what, what it's calling you to in this place. It's saying you should be characterized by an immersion in God, choosing His way, and so it's calling us to that. So I think today you would just say, you do have to ask yourself, which road am I on? Which road am I on? He's saying there's two paths, which one am I on? Am, am I really on the road that leads to eternal life or the road that leads to eternal damnation? Which road? And so you see that in the psalm here. Now, let's go on into the psalm in Psalm uh, chapter 1, verse 1. And what we see here, the righteous man does not walk with the wicked is kind of the picture here. And you see the negative side of this passage. He starts, he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The word blessed here, we see that word throughout the Bible. The word blessed conveys the idea of happiness that flows from a sense of well-being and rightness. It's, it's really kind of, when we say happiness, sometimes we say I'm happy, I'm not happy. 
but it moves beyond that. There's something deeper even here. You might say it is one who is standing in, in the approval of God. Uh, that, that's the blessed one. Uh, the blessed man is in, in good standing with God and his, his, his life flows out of that. A blessed man, the idea of a blessed man is one who's under God's rule and therefore he experiences his blessing. God made a promise to Abraham that I will bless you. God God said that and there's kind of within that he's calling him to follow him and he'll call him to get up and move. But he says, I will bless you. Blessing has the idea of being in good standing with God, being under God's uh, rule and in relationship with him. Israel received God's law after they were saved. God saved them out of bondage in, in Egypt. And then he gave them the law so that they might walk in blessing. They might experience blessing as they were obedient to him. Uh, if you read on into the New Testament, you read the new uh, the Beatitudes. How do they start? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It, 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 there's this idea of blessing. It's being one who is coming into relationship with God and walking in his ways. You see that over and over and over again. So this kind of naturally leads to, to, to really what's going on in this psalm. Being in right standing with God and walking in his ways. Now, in verse 1... Again, we see the idea of what they the negative side blesses a man who does not walk. And he begins to lay out a number of things. The, the things that he says he does not do is, is he does not associate himself with all that is opposed to God, all that is evil. He's not associating himself with that. What you see in this psalm is this gradual kind of spiral downward, someone who walks and then someone who stands, and then someone who sits. He's moving down. He said, bless the man who does not move in that direction, away from God. You can think of it like friendships. Maybe uh, you've had friends where you say, I, for, like maybe on, I think about it on a college campus. It's your first year. You show up on campus. Everybody's new. We start walking together, and people are walking to class, and they're meeting one another. Or maybe after class, they're leaving. And they're meeting with one another and they're saying hi. And it's the first day and everybody's introducing themselves and they're moving along. Well, then when you move from that place to sitting or or to standing, I'm sorry, you stand there and maybe people are in a circle and they're talking and then they move to the place of sitting. As you think about that progression, the relationship becomes more intimate and the acceptance of what is said there becomes more, uh, they become more connected. They're embracing that. And so the idea here is blessed is the one who does not walk, uh, stand or sit with those who are opposed to God. It's the idea of like saying, well, that means that you should not have Christian friends. No, it it has the idea of embracing a life, a, a way of life, a worldview and what follows that worldview. It's not saying that we would say, well, I don't have any friends that are not Christians that are they all have to be, live this perfect Christian life. That that's not the idea. The idea is you're not embracing that way of life, that way of thinking and, and embracing it to the point where it is really you're, you're affected by it and you're changed by it. So I think it's important that we see that on, on display here. 
He says, um, as you kind of, I don't know, keep thinking about this idea, I think in Deuteronomy it kind of stands out to me in the law where God says what's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he says you are to teach your children the ways of God. You're to teach, teach them when you sit down. You need to teach them as you walk. You're to teach them all through all aspects of life. You're not to teach them to abandon God, but to follow God. And so we see that the, the man of God, the, 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 he walks in the ways of God and trains and teaches and leads people in that way. Now, um, I had a guy this week mention to me that, uh, that they were kind of like, the occult was uh, kind of pursuing them. And this, uh, this man's wife said, we're not going that way. We are not going to walk that way. We're not going to sit with those people or stand with it. We are not going to go in that direction. Our family cannot go. And it was just one of those uh, times where I thought about like that's that is it, it, the worldliness. Does not, it's not only that you would not you know, go out and live a wild, sinful life, but you're not going to adopt the teaching of the world that is in opposition to the one true and living God. And we have to watch that And the church throughout the centuries has struggled with embracing lies. And so we're constantly saying, are we immersing ourselves in truth and are we walking in that way? So we see that kind of negative side, that picture here. And then verse two says, but his delight moving to the positive, his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. He is not. Um, he not only learns the law of God. And, and it's not like he comes and he's begrudgingly like coming to learn. Like you maybe met somebody that's like, oh, I'll do it. I mean, it's just oh, the discipline of just got to study and learn. And it's just like almost like begrudging to like study and grow. He, he delights in it. He treasures time with God's word. He wants it. He wants to take it in. And not only that, he takes it in, he consumes it, but he he meditates on it. He chews on it. He's thinking about it. He, He longs to put it into practice in all aspects of his life. He might wake up in the middle of the night longing to sit and feast on the word of God. He delights in it. You'll see people give their lives to so many things in this life and they will like get up early or stay up late or do this or do that all. in. you know, you'll see that happen over and over and you think, but what are you doing it for? Who are you seeking after? What are you longing for? And the picture here is, is that he wakes up, he gets up, he spends his day, he maybe sits down at night and he's saying, how might I put this truth inside of me, meditate on it and then live it out? He's driven by that, consumed with a desire for the law of God. And really, kind of closer to the center of the Psalms is Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, in verses 9 through 16, Psalm 119 is one, it's like the the whole of Psalm 119, I think it's 167 verses, and it's all centered on one, treasuring God's laws, treasuring God's ways, longing to understand His ways and walk in them. But verse 9 through 16 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. 
With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wonder from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This is one that has settled. There's a resolve to know the word of God, to understand God's ways. And that resolve drives this person. But it's not just like making myself do it, but it's delighting in it. And so there is that battle. And I I don't want to (laughs) be... I don't want you to under I want you to understand for me, it's always a battle. There are times where I delight in knowing God's ways and his law and his and I I just think about it. I long to understand it. And then there are times where I have to force myself and I'll say, God, give me a delight. Give me a delight for the things that you have for me so I might understand them and grasp them. Now, we said this earlier, but I just think it's important to say the law, like in a strict sense, would be the first five books of the Old Testament. And, and, and that was where God laid out for the people of God how they were to live and how they were to walk. Um, but, but I think we could also say, and I think it's important, is sometimes when that's mentioned, it also has the idea of just God's rule. And so that God is going to explain to his people how to live. And that's going to go on throughout the whole of Scripture. It's not just going to be limited to the first five books. And so I think we have maybe both of those things on display here. It's both God's guidance to us in his word and more, maybe more specifically at times the first five. But it's the whole of God's guidance to us. He is longing and meditating on what God says. And again, I think this first psalm is saying, read the rest of these psalms. And take those to heart. Take them in and live in light of them. And and so, I mean, maybe you need to stop and think this morning. Like, here's the thing. (laughs) There are a lot of people who claim to be Christians. Who do not love God's law. Did you know that? They never find time for God's word. They never find time to sit down before him. They just don't have time for him. They don't have time to listen to him, to study about him, to 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 to, to, to they just they just somehow it's almost like they have this religion thing down where they say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I know him, but I don't desire God. I, I don't desire him. I don't desire to meditate on his ways. I have so many other things I want to do instead of pursuing God. But they're really religious. And you would say, oh, they're good people. They're good people. They keep themselves in a good place, man. They they do the right stuff. They're awesome, man. They're just like the greatest of people. They don't desire God. They have a form of Christianity. They have a form of Christianity. But it may not be Christianity at all. You, you know what I'm saying? Because they've never been captured by God's the glory of Christ and his work on their behalf and and they don't love him. They know about him enough. 
enough to say I'm a Christian, but not longing for him. And I just think it's always important to understand that is what we don't save ourselves. Even when I say, oh, I believe in Jesus, that does not that does not mean necessarily that I have come to know the Lord. When you read like in first John, which we studied not long ago, it says that those who have been born of God, who does that? God does that. God changes someone's heart where they love Christ. They love his word. They love his people. So someone can claim, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, I believe in Jesus, but not really know God. Because when God does the work, when he transforms the heart, he moves someone to love Christ, to love his people, to love his word. That's what 1 Peter 1 that we just studied says. God caused them to be born again. And the evidence of that will be shown. So like I said, there could be religious people that said they believed in Jesus. But they don't love what God loves and they don't love God. And they don't love His people. And they're not not kind people. They don't see any demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control is not there. And so... Without the Spirit of God transforming the heart, there is no desire for these things. This person meditates on the Word of God and he loves it. He delights in it because one who's truly been converted does delight in God's ways. I think it's important to make that point. I think we need to see that. We need to see that because I had a friend who was in an area like this in Tennessee, though. He was in Tennessee. And he said when he went there... He had this church filled with people who were lost. They did not know the Lord. And he said for like several years, these people had been in church for their whole lives, were coming to faith because they realized that they had grown up in the church or been around that, but they had not truly been converted because there wasn't evidence in their life that God had changed their heart. Verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. Meditating and thinking upon the law of God that we see him longing for resulted in fruitfulness. The result was fruitfulness. By God's grace, they've been purposefully planted by these streams of water. He's empowered them to long and understand and grasp the wonders and the truths of God. And then we see what happens. It produces fruit. The imagery here is amazing. I mean, it really is amazing. It's hard for us because we live in a place where you could go down the interstate both ways and see trees everywhere. Green trees, especially this year, you're just like, This is shocking. There's trees everywhere and they're all green and everything. Nothing's withering. And so we just kind of think, oh, yeah, that's a good point. But it's not like that in Israel. And I I was telling somebody this way, every time I read the now that I've visited there, a lot of times when I read a passage, I think, wow, this is shocking. But we drove for um, uh, uh, when I went to Israel recently, we driving along in a bus and we go and we go and we go and it's just desert. It's like a barren land. 
And all of a sudden, we come up to this place called uh, the Streams of Engedi. And it's the place where uh, David and, and Saul like had that interaction where David was uh, uh, really running from Saul. And there's this, these streams where they would go and you would refresh yourself because you're going through this desert land. And a- after going there, you realize like a tree was a really powerful thing. And there's trees there, like their animals are there, trees are there, water is there, everything's there. And I think about this because in, in, a, in a dry and barren place, when you see a tree that has been firmly planted by a stream, it gets to produce something. It, it produces fruit. And I was talking to um, my father-in-law this week who has an orange grove, and he, um, he always makes fun of preachers who try to like act like they know something about, about everything, but also about, uh, about like, uh, you know, all growing stuff so they'll they'll kind of read a commentary and be like no this is how this works you know and I'm like I try to stay away from that especially around him I'll be like I don't know what you know but he sat down and he, he was just talking to me and he was saying you know like there's times where um there are trees that don't get enough water and they won't produce fruit they, they, they just won't they, they'll live they'll survive but they won't produce and I think the picture here. It's one who's deeply rooted and grounded where the water is accessible so that it can produce, produce amazing fruit. It, it, it's, it's, that's kind of the picture here. It's a powerful illustration of one who is rooted and grounded in God's word and immersed in that. It produces fruit. Now, and, and he says that whatever he does, he prospers. And so we would I think when we think about that, we need to. Think about what it means to thrive or to produce fruit. And I think for, for the, um, I think sometimes uh, we have to be careful because we might say, well, that means that like he can try anything. He'll start a business and it will flourish and he'll do this and it will flourish. And everything he does, it just like goes off the charts. Amazing. But I think the blessed life is not primarily, when we think about it, it's not primarily that he's just, experiencing like some kind of financial success. The idea in this blessed life is that he is in good standing with God. And really almost you might say he's living by the ethic of loving God and loving people. And it drives him. And so he does well in life in a way that we're, what would God approve of? What would God would say? What would God say? This is the life that would glorify him the most. And that's what this person is. His life is dominated by God and pursuing God and God blesses him. And, I, I, you know, it's interesting when you talk to people sometimes who say maybe they're going through a hard time and they'll say, at least we have our family or at least we have uh, uh, our church or at least we have. And what they're doing is you're starting to take away all the things that are not as important. And you're they're starting to go back to the things that are really important. And so as they pre- point to the church and point to their relationship with God and point to these things, they're saying that's what a life well lived looks like. It's a life where God is at the center and we're pursuing him and we're seeing him make us fruitful. And I I, I would say, like, you want to see fruit. And we, we might talk about that, like in the New Testament. We said that earlier. The spirit, the fruit of the spirit are is tied to like attitudes Attitudes of love and attitude of joy and attitude of peace and kindness and gentleness. 
It's it, there's an ad, there's attitudes that come forth from someone the attitudes that reflect the character of God. That reflect the character of God, you say, I'm close to the Lord, really, do you see those attitudes, God's character coming out of you? But it's also actions, there are actions, there's fruit that looks like. Uh, actions that would say, I'm, I'm doing good works that would glorify God. I'm living a life well lived, a life that would bring honor and glory to his name and that others would be blessed. You could go to your tongue and say, well, does your tongue show grace to those who hear? Does it bless others? The way you speak, is it, is it seasoned in such a way and come to them so that there, there's joy that comes forth as they've interacted with you? You could make a long list of a fruitful life that flourishes to the glory of God and the good of others. That's what it looks like. A fruitful life. And we could sit down and talk about that for hours. And it's not a fruit that does not remain. It's a fruit that produces and it keeps growing. And it keeps impacting. It keeps blessing so I think it's important that and Jesus even talked about that there is a fruit that remains that will pass through the judgment and come out on the other side. OK, let's keep moving here. I just want you to see a few more things in verse four. We see the wicked will be destroyed. The blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the you know, path of sinners and sit with scoffers. This blessed man, he delights in the law of God. God prospers him, but the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. They have rooted themselves in evil. And as a result, they've wasted their lives. They will dry up and blow away. They will be as gone as as fast as they came. It's the idea. You know, what's funny is sometimes you can't see that. When we were studying uh, about uh, uh, Noah and that story, uh, when you study that, you find out that, that people were eating and drinking and enjoying life and marrying, giving in marriage, and they were doing all this stuff. And then the flood came. It appeared for the moment that they were flourishing. But the flood came. It says that they are like chaff. And you, if you uh, know anything about when harvest time comes, there's a process, uh, in, especially in the old days, the way this was done, there was a process of winnowing. And the, the lightweight and useless chaff, <clears throat> the husk of grain that had been loosened from the kernel by beating, would, would be thrown up in the air, the kernel's of whatever was produced would fall to the ground and that stuff would go away. It's the wasted stuff. It's something that has no value. The scripture tells us that uh, people are like dust in the wind in a sense. Like that's kind of the picture. And you maybe, you've, you know, listen to the song and you get it in your mind. You think that's really there's some of a picture of that. And Ecclesiastes Solomon speaks of. The things that man accomplishes in this world apart from God as meaningless and striving after wind. The righteous will endure and are stable, but the wicked have no future. That's the picture here. So notice verse five. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Here's the picture. The world is coming to an end. He has said, listen, there's two ways you can live. There's two roads you can walk. And as you you choose which one, one is going to end in blessing, the other in a curse. The other one is going to be judgment. You will stand in judgment. So that's kind of the picture. The Bible presents many of those many judgments that are pointing us to the greater judgment, the final judgment, where all men will stand before the Lord. Now, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. Revelation 6, verse 15 and 16. And it says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and the wrath of the lamb. And so these people that appeared to prosper in the day of judgment, they're begging for the rocks to fall on them. You move on further into uh, Revelation 22 verses 14 and 15. Before, I mean, as you go there, I'll just mention to you in Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of separating the sheep from the goats. And he says the goats will be separated from him. The sheep will be brought into um, blessing. The goats will be under God's judgment. But notice in, in Revelation 22, 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So he's laying out for us these two ways. Ultimately, in the end, there'll be two separate groups, one going to to judgment, the other blessed. And that's what we see. And you're going to see really in chapter one, you see it on an individual level, chapter two on a corporate level. Next week, we'll see that unfold. Now, notice, go back to Psalm and, and, and you notice in verse six. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There is a psalm. If you want to write it down, you can go back and read it later. We don't have time. But in Psalm 37, he lays that out over and over. He'll compare the righteous and the wicked, the righteous and the wicked and their ends. Now, let me ask you this. Just when you're thinking about a psalm like this. And you look at your life, you may say, man, Wow, I have not always delighted in God's law. I have not always sought his ways. And what what am I to do with this psalm? Is there is there hope or what, what are we to do with that? I think it's real important to say this. This psalm is only fully embodied by one man. There is only one man who has ever embodied this psalm to the fullest extent. He is the only truly righteous man. The Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. It tells us that our righteousness, our only hope for right standing with God to be considered righteous is by faith as we trust in Jesus, the perfectly righteous one. Romans 5 1 says, therefore, 
Since we have been justified, that means declared right in God's eyes by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are trusting in His righteous life, His righteous life, both in His life and His death, His righteous living, His complete obedience to the law in every aspect He was that. Now, that does not mean that we're not to live the righteous life. It just means that the only one that is truly embodies what God has called us to is Christ. He is the righteous one. He is the one that we're hoping in. We are trusting in his righteousness by faith. We enter into right standing with God through his son. He alone was the one who paid the penalty for our sin. And he lived the life that we could never live. And all that's laid out for us in the scripture. And so I think this psalm should both be a sign for you saying, choose which way you live. Understand that there are two roads to walk. But we also understand that there's only one that truly walked the right road all the time. And that is what God calls us to, to perfect holiness. And Jesus did that. So in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. But it does not stop there. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I would say to you today, you read Psalm one and you need to see Jesus. You need to understand that he is the blessed one. He is the one that God could say of him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he could say that fully and he did and he was pleased with his son and by virtue of our relationship with him God can be pleased with us but that does not mean you don't heed the advice of this psalm this psalm is calling us to live a righteous life that produces good works and the new testament would come in and say one who has truly been saved by Christ and experienced salvation in him it will result in an obedient life And so I think we have to put that together and I hope that's done that for you today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have opened the door to us to understanding. We pray that if there's someone here today who's never trusted in Christ, we pray that they would come in repentance and faith and experience salvation in the only name where salvation is offered in the name of Jesus. And we praise you, God, that you work in us We pray that we would be more and more fruitful this year as we meditate on your ways and walk in them by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen.